Welcome, this is James Corbett. You're tuned into CorbettReport.com. It is the 21st of June, 2012, and today we are joined once again by our old friend Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com. Tom Secker, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jen. James. It's, it's good to be talking to you again and talking to you about something hopefully that will be slightly more positive than uh, state-sponsored terrorism. Well, that's right. Yes, we've had numerous conversations and they've always been fascinating and interesting, but they've always dwelt on that uh, topic of state-sponsored terror and, and false flag and predictive programming and, and other such, uh, well, quite miserable topics when you really start to dig into them. So, so it is uh, with uh, some trepidation, but some uh, hope <laughs> that I'm going to uh, venture into something completely different with you today. Um, it, it came about through some correspondence that we had recently that uh, that you wanted to talk or that I wanted to talk as well about some alternative economic and political ideas, because this is, of course, one of the key things that is that is driving a lot of the uh, the, the alternative politics and alternative media um, in this day and age. There's a lot of alternative ideas for organizing our society more generally. So thinking about the uh, the macroeconomics and political issues and how we can better organize our society, which is, of course, a pretty huge task. So I'm assuming we're probably not going to solve all the world's problems tonight, but you never know. But uh, uh, let I, I really don't know where to really begin with this. So perhaps, I mean, I guess we could start with the critique of the, the system that is and uh, also the systems that are being proposed as alternatives, because I understand you have some reservations about the way that you see a lot of the alternative media heading as well. Well, yeah, I do, because um, as you might expect, I mean, I do, I tend to swim against the current no matter which river I'm swimming in, but that's that just seems to be the way I am. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, but I, I do see certain ideas, and I'm talking about both within the kind of uh, state political party realm and beyond it. There's a lot of ideas knocking around that it's not that I even fundamentally disagree with a lot of them. And certainly I don't disagree with their intent. Um, I just wonder about their implications and their consequences and think that, you know, we, we just that we need to sort of consider a broader range of possibilities. Um, and so, I mean, we should probably start with something that's a, that's a bit more straightforward uh, to, to discuss and straightforward to understand. Um, and I, I suppose I mean party politics, which, you know, I, I'm completely on board with this thing about, you know, that, that the division between left and right is sort of at best misleading if, if it even exists at all. I think it does exist in, in small ways, but it's always within an extremely narrow framework. You can either typically vote for a so-called left-wing liberal party, which is slightly more socialist and slightly more, you know, pro-trade union and pro-welfare state, or you can vote for a slightly more right-wing, slightly more conservative nationalistic party who will be slightly more kind of uh, pro-warfare state and slightly less socialist and less welfare state than the other. But very rarely do either of them, if ever, do either side fundamentally question what the other one is doing. They just sort of play this game of ping pong. So, you know, I mean, I'm totally with you on that. I don't, I don't dispute any of that kind of uh, critique at all. I, th I think, if anything, it's, it's long, long overdue that there is now a widespread recognition of that that ultimately mainstream political parties are, to keep it simple, not the answer, not the answer to our problems. All right. Well, I, I uh, so far so good. I, I would perhaps 
somewhat quibble with the the some of the uh, characteristics that you assign to the the left and the right there. I mean, I think I mean uh, certainly we do equate in the in the spe- political spectrum the right side with the warmongers, but I would say that certainly the left has shown themselves to be equal warmongers, if not more so, certainly under people like Obama. So. But again, I think what you just said, just broadly speaking, the uh, what a lot of different uh, media outlets, including this one, has been saying for some time now, and and I th- I, I agree. I think there is a, a a genuine political difference between left and right. But I think that since every other possible political avenue has been completely shut down, the over stress stressing the over uh, exaggeration of the importance of that left right d- distinction has made it almost meaningless in a way because it's the only part of the the political universe that people can pay any attention to anymore and as you say it just becomes a football but yes so i think broadly speaking that's pretty much where i'm at well okay i mean and to to pick on it upon exactly what you just said yeah sure um while it may have been true you could argue 50 60 years ago that the left wasn't quite as warmongering as as the right or the so-called left and the so-called right um these days it is there is pretty much no difference on that front. And you're absolutely right um, that they are both warmongering. I suppose, but, you know, there is still a bit of a distinction between the, uh, if you like, the, the way that the right tends to get support for a war um, is typically quite nationalistic. It's a sense of, you know, this is us, this is our border and our identity, and this is our patch, and this is somehow being threatened or invaded by whatever externalized, made up, usually threat that, that, that they're talking about. Whereas the left, it tends to be, oh, there's this, this horrible thing happening overseas and uh, we have to fight because it's the right thing to do because it's necessary for the world to progre- progress in a good way that we go and invade Libya or Syria or, you know, we topple a dictator or something. We call ourselves heroes. The left tends slightly more, I think, towards that kind of approach. The we're fighting because it's a good thing to do, whereas the right tends more towards that it's a necessary evil because there is this horrible thing out there and we're just faced with no choice, but we have to go after it. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they both like launching their wars, no doubt. Um, I, I think there is a somewhat kind of dissolving but nonetheless generic difference in, in the way they sell those wars. I mean, would you agree with that? Agreed completely, 100%. Um, so, so... Okay, having summarily dispensed with mainstream political parties, um, I don't think we need to necessarily devote any more breath or any more time to talking about that. So if Ever we move on again. To... <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Well, if only, but yeah, that, that is kind of the way I feel about it. Um, so if we then look at slightly more fringe parties, and the, and the one I particularly, the one that sort of particularly irks me and bothers me uh, is UKIP, the UK Independence Party, because there, are, there is a lot of promotion of, in particular, Nigel Farage in the independent media. And I, I'm not sort of trying to bitch anyone out here, but I've seen very little rounded appreciation or criticism of what UKIP actually stand for. In fact, I'm, most people... Uh, and again, uh, you know, I'm not sort of trying to single people out or name any names or anything like that. But most people that I've spoken to who are in the fringe politics, alternative media, truth movement, whatever, um, who I've talked to about UKIP, who kind of sing their praises, the vast majority of them don't even seem to have actually read the policies that are on UKIP's own website. 
they just seem to be going on this Nigel Farage sticks it to the EU and therefore he must be a good man and his platform must be good and therefore he must be someone that we should support because he's a fringe politician, not a mainstream politician and, and so let's put our money and our votes behind him. And I just think that's so... Firstly, it's quite ignorant, as I say, I think quite a lot of these people are quite ignorant of what UKIP's platform and policies really are. Um, I also think it's so misguided that to expect that just because someone is opposed to one dimension of the problem, <laughs> talking in big inverted commas there, um, I think it's so misguided to think that it's therefore he's someone we should be getting behind and his platform is something we should be getting behind. Because when you look at what UKIP actually say, um, I've just I've made a few notes here on the back of a response to a freedom of information request from the FBI. Uh, they say they want to spend an extra 40% on the military. They want to raise the military budget in the UK by 40%. I don't think that's anything that most people in the truth movement or whatever could really get behind. They want to maintain the nuclear deterrent. They want to keep this completely pointless arsenal of massively expensive nuclear weapons that are they're just, a, I mean, they're not just an, a moral abomination. Politically, they don't make any sense because we're never going to be in a position that we're ever going to use them. And supposedly, since the great threats are, you know, rogue dictators and terrorists and climate change, well, nuclear weapons aren't an answer to any of those problems. You're never going to use a nuclear missile against a terrorist group, are you? So it, it just doesn't make any sense, even within the very limited framework of, of state politics, um, let alone is it something we could... Is this something we should value? Is this something that we should want and we should want to see out there in the world? I really don't think it is. They also say they want to strengthen their uh, our commitment, the Britain Britain's commitment to NATO. So he's anti-EU but pro-NATO. I mean, that's that's not that's not something I can. I, again, I feel that we should be supporting, or certainly not that I can support. As far as I'm concerned, if it was a choice between the EU and NATO. I'd be slightly more in favour of the EU than NATO. But of course, it isn't a choice between those two things. They're both just kind of different manifestations of the same movement to centralise power. And so therefore, we should be opposed to both of them. So it's clear that Farage and UKIP aren't opposed to centralised power per se. They're in favour of centralised military power under NATO and opposed to centralised uh, state bureaucratic power under the EU, which kind of... To me, it just seems like either a, a total confusion or a total hypocrisy. Um, and then if we look at slightly more domestically, they want to scrap the Human Rights Act because, not that I'm even necessarily defending the Human Rights Act, but what does it tell you about a party when that is, is top of their agenda? And, and their excuse for scrapping the Human Rights Act? So it would make it easier to deport terrorism suspects. I mean, this is, this is just the same old nonsense that we've had from mainstream parties, slightly rejigged and slightly kind of jazzed up and made to seem a bit more radical um, and in order to try and win votes from disgruntled people. And people have every right to be disgruntled. I'm disgruntled. You're disgruntled. A hell of a lot of people around the world are. And that's all great. You know, like it says in the film, you, you've got to get mad first. But then I think you need to kind of calm down a bit and think, what, what are we going to do about this? And I don't think the answer to the question, what are we going to do about this, is we should support Nigel Farage and UKIP. Um, they want to double 
the amount of prison space in the UK. They want to introduce a life must mean life sentencing policy and a three strikes sentencing policy. So basically, they want to throw more people in prison for longer. They want to spend more on the military. They want to get more involved in NATO and they want to scrap the Human Rights Act. Does this really sound like a party that, that an alternative politics, a fringe politics and a truth movement should, should be getting behind? Uh, it's, it certainly doesn't, if I can answer that non-rhetorical question, I hope. And, and uh, I, I agree completely with what you're saying and what you're pointing out here. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but last Friday, I believe, on, on Corbett Report Radio, I did play a clip of Nigel Farage at, at speaking to members of European Parliament. And I did mm-hmm. preface that with the proviso that, no, I'm, it doesn't mean that I'm supporting him at his, the UKIP platform per se. It's just that in this particular case, I think he makes a great point. And uh, uh, I mean, and what, what's your take on that? I mean, f- from from the perspective of people who are opposed to the EU, is there a sense that we can use the the speeches and things that we agree with and and use that as a, a way to help demonstrate the political points we're making? Or do you see that as forming an alliance with someone that we we don't want to associate with? I mean, I, I'm certainly not behind UKIP and their their policies generally, but I certainly do agree with the points that they make about the EU specifically. Um. Fair question, fair question. I did listen to your radio show, and this is actually partly why um, I've specifically brought this up now. I'll, I'll, I'll try and be as constructive as possible. I'm not going to in any way criticise what you said on your radio show or the clip that you presented or any of that. What I would say is you don't need this guy. You're better than him. You're better than Nigel Farage. You're smarter than him. You've got more moral integrity. You care more about the people around you and the world that you're living in than he does. And so you don't need to, I'm not going to use the word cherry pick because that is pejorative. You don't need to, to, you know, grab a bit out of something. He, he is a good orator. Um, and cinematically, it's kind of useful. Uh, I can see that as a shortcut to, um, to saying what it is that you want to, you want said to use someone else's stuff. But, I think you should only really use it if you accept that person as an authority. And I don't think you do really accept Nigel Farage as an authority. You just think he, he's you know, made some good, strong speeches with some good, strong arguments against the EU. I just I feel that you, you're better than that and you can do better than that because I actually think you could make those criticisms in a far more eloquent and earnest way and in a way that would resonate with more people than just kind of the angry brigade. Um, so that yeah, that would be my response to it. We we don't need these people. Well, I I agree. I don't accept him as an authority. I don't expect accept anyone as an authority. Actually, I don't believe in that concept. But uh, but certainly, it, it well that raises a lot of uh, interesting points for me because I, for example, have guests on the Corbett Report who I certainly do not agree with all of the facets of their economic or political beliefs or philosophy. But I, I still have them on on the topics that we agree about. Uh, uh, and I, I, I see that to be a healthy thing. I don't want to start shutting down the conversation to people who have differing points of view or to uh, to make it in, into a type of religion where someone has to you know correspond with me on all points before I'll, I'll talk to them or promote them. I think it has to be somewhat somewhat broader than that. And I, I, I don't necessarily think of it as forming an alliance with, with Nigel Farage or anything. I, I, I think if he makes a good point in a good way, I'll, I'll use that and I'll acknowledge it and attribute it to the person it deserves to be attributed to. Um, and I, if he makes a good point in another area, I can use that. But I, 
I see it more in that way, and I would expect others to take what I say in that vein. Not that if I disagree with them on one particular point that they'll throw out the entire Corbett report, but that they'll use those po points of the Corbett report that they agree with to try to make their points. Yeah, and, and I'm with you as far as that goes, in which case I suppose if you, if you are going to include him, and <laughs> I wish we weren't talking about you personally because I'm a massive fan of what you've done for, for so long, um, and I don't in any way want to be sort of acting like I, I'm getting at you. I, I'm really not. I'm, you know, I think you've done some amazing work. I think you've done a lot of amazing work. Um, I suppose I would say in that case, if you want to put Farage in your shows or in your videos or whatever, by all means do. Um, but firstly, always preface it as you did with a, I'm not supporting this guy and his entire platform. I'm just saying this clip's a good clip for the point that I'm making. Okay, fine. That's, you know, that's perfectly credible journalistically that's, and, and has intellectual and moral integrity. So I have no objection to that. Um, I would also say... You know, you could then kind of not preface it, but follow it up with a little. And if you actually go and have a look at UKIP's website, they are actually in favor of a lot of things that are pretty despicable or at least would very much take us in the wrong direction. Because that's the thing, the part of the conversation I feel that's so often missing is not the, you know, let's give this guy credit for when he's actually done something and said something that's worth doing and saying, okay, do that. At the same time, criticize him and his party and their platform where they're doing things and saying things that are really not helpful and that really we do oppose. We have to, I think we have to sort of, in order to define where we're going with this, in order to define what values and what politics and economics and all the rest of it that we want to see in the world, um, I, I just wish we had a little bit more criticism for the kind of uh, accepted figures, if you like. Um, that, that a, a lot of people use in their in their production of an alternative media and in their discussion on on fringe and alternative politics. Um, I just feel we could do with a little bit more information and a little bit more self criticism there, because uh, I, I just don't see very much of that that out there. I think you do a, a far better job than most in that respect. I mean, you're you're putting me on your on your show to talk about my problems with UKIP, so you're kind of fulfilling everything that I'm saying in the very fact that we're having this conversation. Well, I think it's a fair point, and, and I agree. I think that there should be more space for that self, self-criticism, self-reflection on, on the various uh, types of information that we're bringing to the table, because you're right. I mean, it does imply, it can, it can at least give the impression of implying that there is some sort of overall support for a person if we, if we play them. And, and certainly, I don't want to get hung up on Farage, because I know this is a much bigger point than that. But, but for <laughs> example, in the case of Farage, I have played clips of him several times in the past, so that would seem. I, I, I definitely see how that could give an impression that this is someone we should be supporting generally. And, uh, and I think you're right. We should be clear about uh, the points where we're making particular points, making use of particular pieces of information rather than supporting someone generally. So I think, I think you're right on that point. Okay, so if we move on, uh, and this may be popular or unpopular, um, if we move on to some of the questions I have um, about the, the Ron Paul campaign, because that's, you know, blown up into this huge storm in the last week or two. And there's an awful lot of accusations flying around and an awful lot of speculation and, and quite a lot of people, I think, who have felt um, betrayed, I suppose, by, by, by this, not necessarily by Ron Paul personally, but 
by the values that the campaign was was supposed to be behind and and was supposed to be based on was supposed to be inspired by i mean um and I, I, I mean, I, I understand that and sympathize with that, but part of me just feels, you know, did you not see this coming? What you're actually talking about here is, they, they called it the Ron Paul revolution, but it, it's just an old man trying to run for the Republican nomination for president. When you break it down, that's all it is. It's not a revolution, and it never was. And I'm not kind of going to have a go at people here. Um, I just think... Again, we don't need these people, and we, we can do better than this. All of those people who supported Ron Paul because they believed in him, and or at least believed in the values that he was espousing, okay, fine, but I don't think the answer to to the, the your disgruntlement and your dissatisfaction and your unhappiness and anger at the way things are heading, I don't think they can be answered through that route. I think um, rather than being this sort of... Uh, We've mentioned it before, the society of the spectacle, rather than being a spectator to politics, where we, which always leaves you open to this kind of icon production and this, you know, we, the very fact that it's a presidential position that, that these people are supposedly fighting to try and get, you know, it's an individual. I mean, it's basically just a guy in a chair in an office with some pens, but more broadly speaking, this is the whole kind of failure of democratic politics is that what it turns people into is a society of spectators of people who watch the politics playing out and then occasionally vote for it like it's some simon cowell program rather than saying what can i do what talents and skills and and values do i have that i want to see in the world and how can i make that a reality um and i just feel people should should do that far more should see that as their route to genuine political change rather than voting for whoever but i do have some specific reservations about about the whole ron paul platform for one thing without sort of getting into um being yeah being too bitchy about it I, it just doesn't make any sense to me um again when i I, didn't, I don't make my judgment on, a, on someone like Ron Paul by watching his speeches. I don't really make my judgment on someone like Nigel Farage by watching his speeches. I make my judgment on going and seeing what are their policies, what are their budgets, what are they actually saying they want to do. So I actually look at the platform uh, as, as it's outlined on their websites and in manifestos and, and so on because I just think that that's, that's where you find the meat and potatoes of what they're really getting at. It's very easy for politicians to be on a stage uh, using rhetoric and, and sort of saying they're in favour of something or at least conceding a bit of ground to it because they can hear that that's where the audience wants them to go with it. Um, and I, I think it's, it's easy for people to get misguided by that. Even people who are informed and intelligent make that mistake. I mean, Lord knows I've made it enough times where I've heard someone say something in a particularly eloquent, eloquent way, and that's convinced me that what they were saying was true, when, of course, all they've done is say something in an eloquent way. What they're, what they're saying could be completely false. So anyway, yeah, when I had a glance through the, 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 the Ron Paul budgets and, and, and the plan to restore America and all of this stuff on his website, I mean, he says he's in favor of limited government and constitutional government, but what the numbers actually show is a, in his projected budgets, were he, if he was elected, um, 
was that he would have actually increased the revenues of the federal government by over half a trillion dollars in four years. And that doesn't, to me, sound like someone who's in favour of limited government. He also says the same budgets say that the, the outgoings, the expenditures, would also increase, but obviously by a lower amount, because his whole thing is about we need to balance the budget, we need to, you know, bring in what only only spend what we bring in. Um, but the overall pattern is an increase in the size of the government, which seems to be completely at odds with, with what he says he's in, in favour of and what he says he believes in. Um, Again, he he comes across as a staunch constitutionalist uh, and calls him call it, calls himself a constitutionalist, and a lot of his supporters are constitutionalists. And without getting into a kind of abstract discussion about the values of the constitution and whether or not they are it is the values or, or the document itself that people believe in and what is actually important there, um, one of the most important bits in the constitution is that it says that the Congress of the United States its only military responsibility, its only kind of intelligence and defense responsibility uh, is the Navy and, I suppose, by extension, the Office of Naval Intelligence. There is nothing in the Constitution that would mandate the permanent defense department, the Pentagon, um, or the Central Intelligence Agency or the NSA or any of these things. Um, so I would argue a staunch constitutionalist should be completely in favor of abolishing all of these because they're, they're surely just a gigantic waste of money, if nothing else. Um, and also, they aren't called for in the plan that these, these people say they believe in. Um, and I'm obviously, you know, abolish the CIA. I'd abolish it tomorrow if it was up to me. We don't, again, we don't need these things. Um, and, they, and certainly with the CIA and the Pentagon, and I would apply the exact same to the, the British equivalents, you know, this isn't about just America. Um, I'd say they, they are the most nefarious, damaging institutions of them all. Um, they are the most damaging parts of the government. And so, therefore, they're the ones that I feel we, we, we most need to be sort of attacking, that we most need to be driving people, political will against. Um, he also, he says he's, he's in favor of free markets. Um, which basically seems to break down to he's in favor of deregulation because, I mean, this whole question about money supply, you've had this discussion with Stéphane Molyneux and Paul Grignon and all sorts of different people. You, you even had, uh, you had Bill Still on your program not so long ago, uh, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, so obviously, you know, there's quite a divergent range of opinions there between what sort of alternative alternatives for the money supply have, have been proposed and have been suggested. Um, but the one that it says on Ron Paul's website is that he wants to... And I, just, I just found this hilariously strange and, and unrealistic. He wants to implement competing currency legislation. He wants to create a more competitive market for the money supply by government decree. And this is libertarianism? Really? It, it doesn't sound like it to me. But that's what it actually says. That's his platform. I just, I just don't see why people aren't seeing the contradictions here. I really don't. It, it, it's baffling to me more than anything else. I'm not, like I say, I'm not trying to sort of have a go at people. I'm just saying, think about this stuff. Well, think uh, about if I can interject here, um, go on, go on. E either 
either you don't understand what that means or I don't, because I, I think that I understand that to mean that he wants to get government out of the practice of regulating what the currency, what if acceptable forms of currency are, so that, for example, they can't throw people like Bernard von Nothaus in, in jail for creating liberty dollars. But you, you would do that by repealing the laws that allow you that allow the state to throw competitors in jail uh, rather than enacting you know proactive legislation that that's not what i understand that to mean though i thought that my understanding of of that platform was that that would mean that uh, that instead of the laws that are on the books to make uh, the the dollar the legal tender they would be that would be a repealing of those laws Hmm. That was my understanding of what that actually means, but I, again, I, perhaps I don't. Well, that understand. may that may be well, what what he actually means by it. Um, but when you say implement legislation in favor of a competitive market, to me, it just seems like a a, a contradiction in terms. If you genuinely believe in that re regulation is sort of damaging to the free market, which I think most people do, and if you truly believe in a free market, I think it is. Um, I just don't see how you can expect to do these things from the government, I suppose is, is what I'm fundamentally saying here, is if you, if you believe the government should be out of the economy as much as possible, which is what libertarians believe, um, I, I don't see how you, you, you can expect to do it like that. But anyway, well, again, um, perhaps my, mis my misunderstanding. Some I don't part think of you this, are but... misunderstanding. I don't think you are misunderstanding. Um, if anything, I'm misunderstanding what is meant by that phrase, because well, the certainly of the implementing is legislation so... sounds yeah like he's going to pass something proactively that will create some create. sort of new law. And if, if that's it's... the case, then then I think you have a point. But but my understanding was that it was more a repealing of the laws that that make the dollar, the legal tender, and thus the only acceptable form of payment. Um, I mean, do those, do those laws strictly exist in America? They do, I, I mean, because... Uh, a, it, I, mean, I don't mean from the sense that they, they, they do these sorts of things where they do actually arrest people and try and shut down alternatives. Um, but I thought it was actually... Uh, well, I suppose the laws could exist and they could be running contrary to the Constitution, because the bit of the Constitution I read is that... Um, Congress can not only sort of issue its own currency, which is Bill Still's platform and, and his, if you like, quasi-socialist money supply, um, but that it can also pass that authority onto other institutions, which is presumably how we ended up with the Federal Reserve in the first place. No? Well, I, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the, those laws at all, so I, I don't know. But my understanding was that, uh, for example, in the case of the Liberty Dollar with uh, Von Nothaus, I believe that the uh, the case they were making against him was that it looked too much like an actual currency. So you can have whatever Chuck E. Cheese dollars or, or whatever Walmart dollars or whatever that are, you know, promotional items, but anything that actually looks like a currency for... And of course, they'll just use whatever leeway they have in government to interpret that. So my understanding was that the, the point of this was to make it more legal for people to to mint their own coins, you know, in whatever fashion they please, which would be an expansion of freedom rather than a government-imposed contraction of freedom. Well, okay, maybe on, on, on that point it is something that I'm 
I'm interpreting more from a sloppily phrased bit of the website than from something he actually believes in. But okay. Um, the other thing that, that really bothered me about this platform was, uh, and indeed the whole kind of rhetoric, if you like, of, of free market capitalism um, as it's being used by people within the mainstream or relative mainstream uh, political uh, spheres is that he, he talks about, you know, he, he's, a, he's opposed to government subsidies that he, um, he believes government... That, okay, let's forget about Ron Paul for a moment. A lot of people are opposed to these government subsidies because they think that they, and indeed have a lot of evidence, that they create monopolies or at least help create cartels, that government subsidy and regulation is often a way of consolidating large sections of the market in the private corporate hands of, of a very few people. And so you don't get a competitive market and you don't get a free market, as, they, as people call it, um, which could actually be beneficial in a lot of these sections of the economy. Um, and I kind of, again, I largely accept that argument. I largely see how this has happened. I, I, I can see how regulatory institutions uh, largely end up only regulating the small guys. And, and it seems that the, the very bigs, the Walmarts, the Chevrons, the you know Goldman Sachs, whoever, um, seem to basically get away with whatever they like. And if they do end up being found guilty of breaking certain regulations, they usually get away with a slap on the wrist. Whereas quite often small businesses are, are put out of business simply fighting the legal battle. So, you know, I get all that. I really do. Um, and I largely agree with it. I just find that that rhetoric is so often used simply to attack certain parts of the state rather than talk about dismantling the state sort of almost entirely, if not entirely. And I'll give you an example that, um, it, it, I, sorry, but returning to the Ron Paul budgets, um, it seems that the, the Pentagon expenditure would only be cut in terms of ending the wars. Okay, fine, completely on board with that. End the wars again. I would end them tomorrow if it was up to me. Um, but the basic budget of the Pentagon would essentially remain intact according to the numbers that, that I read. And surely the Pentagon is one of the biggest means by which government subsidies are handed out in America because they are, are given to de defense contractors or mercenary firms, you know, weapon merchants, all of that. Um, and so I have a lot, of, a lot of reservations about someone, or not someone, I, I frankly couldn't really care less about Ron Paul himself as a person, but I have, I have a lot of reservations about a platform which is opposed to government subsidy yet continues the Pentagon's budget, a lot of which is being used to subsidize weapons manufacture. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but is sort of simultaneously opposed to the welfare state. I'm not a big fan of the welfare state by any means. I, I accept an awful lot of the criticisms and an awful lot of the problems that people have outlined with it. But I don't feel, and this is me personally talking here, I'm not necessarily saying in any way that people have to agree with this, that again, I have a lot of reservations about that kind of political platform where free market rhetoric is being used as an excuse for not shredding, but certainly lowering the, the amount of money that's spent on the welfare state when you don't see the same 
free market rhetoric being used to oppose the the government subsidies via the Pentagon. I just think I think that's the wrong that's a wrong move. I think that's a wrong direction to go in. I think if we're we're overall trying to reduce the size of the state um, or even get rid of the state completely, which I ultimately believe we do have to and that we should. I mean, you know, the state is it's a gangster's paradise. Um, it's <laughs> it, it's just kind of like saying to a bunch of psychopaths, here's this massive toy for you to play with. Um, I, I, I agree with all of those sorts of criticisms, but I'm saying if we should do it, the aim, surely, the, the targets, the number one targets, shouldn't be the welfare state, which I think we can kind of bypass and replace with something that, if you like, accomplishes a lot of the same aims, but without the, the same problems. Um, but the parts we really, really want to get rid of are things like the, the permanent weapons establishment, the permanent arms industry, the military-industrial complex, the CIA, all of that. That's where I'm coming from with this. It's not that I am sort of some mainstream leftist arguing for the welfare state against the warfare state. I'm just saying, from the point of view of an anarchist, the most horrible parts of the state are the ones we, we should be devoting as much effort to, get to, to abolishing, first of all, if, if you're with me. That's where I'm coming from anyway. Well, you certainly won't have an argument from me on that point, and uh, and I think that's the type of. In fact, we've heard that type of rhetoric used and deployed. For example, Ron Paul has made that point in some of his interviews and speeches. We can't just shut down everything overnight because people have become dependent on this. It has to take place over an amount of time. But you, so you're pointing out, for example, in in the proposed Ron Paul budget, the Department of Defense, there would be a, a spending freeze, um, but that would, of course, still enable huge amounts of money each year going to the Pentagon and the the, uh, the weapons manufacturers. Well, uh, I don't want to be put into the position of defending Ron Paul or, or his supporters, because I think people will realize by now that I, I have become very much an anti-statist, and I don't think that the uh, the answer lies in the amelioration of, of the system as it exists. I think, as you say, we have to get rid of the state entirely. And I, I, I agree. I think we would have to dismantle the warfare state before or at least uh, either at the same time or at least uh, start with the warfare state and then the welfare state uh, can be people can be weaned off of that in a manner that hopefully won't cause some sort of mass genocide. But um, but let me present some type of defense, uh, and we'll both see what we can make of this. So, f for example, if we're looking at the uh, at the discretionary spending that's been proposed under the Ron Paul plan, uh, there would be a complete elimination of all international assistance, the Department of Energy, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Interior, and the Department of Education, education uh, uh, pretty much immediately from him assuming office, and uh, which is, I think anyone would say is... is about as revolutionary a platform as any president, serious presidential candidate has offered in quite a long time. And I don't, I, I don't want to make this argument, but I know there will be people out there who are listening who will have this argument that, uh, that one, one person obviously in the office of presidency cannot be expected to completely and utterly abolish everything overnight. It has to be done a bit at a time. And I think anyone would see that's quite an ambitious project for anyone who's running, for example, for the Republican Party nomination. So the question is, can this be done in stages? And does the, uh, for example, setting the, the Defense Department uh, budget for a 15% total reduction over a four-year plan, is that 
a start? I mean, can we imagine that that would be used as a way of, of trying to get people on board with the idea that we don't need all of these departments in, in government, uh, an audit of the Fed instead of shutting the Fed down or, or privatizing it overnight? Or is that just an amelioration? I'm going to say it's just an amelioration of the system and what we don't want, but I want to hear what your argument with, to that would be. Um, my argument would be that because so much of what we've seen develop um, in terms of centralizing power, in terms of the very problems that we see across the state and, of course, beyond the state. I mean, the state is a sort of corporate entity anyway. Um, a lot of its revenues come from investments. Uh, it is so closely tied with these corporate cartels in different parts of the economy, and they indeed depend to a large extent on the state to maintain them as cartels. So it's when I'm, when I say the state, I think you, you, you do the same thing. When I say the state, I'm not just talking about the government. I, I am talking about a, a structure beyond that, that encompasses a lot of large corporations as well, that in, in many respects have only become large corporations because there was a state there to help them do it. Um, so, I would say because so much of that centralization has happened incrementally, we can't kind of oppose it incrementally because otherwise we'll sort of get into that whole squalid affair of territory. You know, if we can win on this one little bit of legislation, but we lose on six others, we've still lost. You know, overall, the state has still got bigger and become more centralized and more powerful. And, you know, we can win a few battles that way and we can maybe get a few more people accustomed to this idea that we, you know, maybe we should reduce the size of the state a bit. T to me, that's, it's just not enough. It's gone too far for that to be viable. Um, I think when it, it may have been when you were interviewing Stefan Molyneux or it may have been when he was presenting your shows. Um, I did listen to your, your, your guest hosts and, and very much enjoyed them, although I, I missed missed having you as a, as a regular radio host to listen to, um, that he, he made this argument that it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you believe Ron Paul's platform and you believe he's a good man, and I have no particularly strong opinion on that, I'm not really in favor of his platform. I don't really have any strong opinion on the man himself because I, I don't know enough to make that judgment. Um, it, it's still kind of appointing a good man as captain of the, ice, of, of the Titanic just after it's hit the iceberg. Um, it, it, it's just, I don't think we can expect to incrementally roll back a massively centralized military bureaucracy. I think only the strong argument, the strongest argument we can make is that this is essentially a, a massive mafia organization and therefore we just need to be rid of it. No compromises on that. Because if we compromise on that, then we might succeed in reducing the size of the Pentagon, but at the same time, they might sneak in by the back door a bunch of legislation that makes the CIA and the NSA much more powerful. And so we might less, have a few less men with guns and a few less, you know, jackbooted thugs marching around on the streets in silly uniforms claiming to be allowed to commit acts of violence. But we might be spied on an awful lot more and end up in a more sort of technocratic control system rather than a more sort of guns-on-the-street military control system. Well, I, I do agree with that. As I say, I, I, uh, I can't really... I'm not in a position to defend 
the the Paul platform and the people who are supporting that. And uh, I I can't be I, I I can't really put myself in those shoes. But uh, I I do know that that a lot of people have invested so much in the Ron Paul campaign over not just this year, but of course the last time as well. And I think some people have invested so much of their identity in that that they at this point don't want to be seen to have been taken for a ride and don't want to be seen to have supported just another GOP candidate, even a better GOP candidate, but just another Republican in the end. Um, so I think some people, it, it does run the risk of becoming the exact type of thing that people have, I think, quite correctly pointed out as the delusions of the Obama supporters, for example, who who truly believed in the hope and change rhetoric, and then when it failed to materialize, would just continually make, make excuses for why Obama just couldn't get his agenda through. Well, maybe he never planned to implement it in the first place, exactly as we were all saying, you know, before he even got into office. So I think uh, I have seen some disturbing parallels with that. So, for example, we have to, it, in some way, I mean, people who are supporters of Ron Paul have to make some sort of uh, resolution between, for example, his speech saying that the CIA has affected a coup of the United States and his platform, which does not involve the abolishment of the CIA. And um, it's not for me to give any sort of criticism to someone who doesn't want to put their life on the line by saying, I'm going to eliminate the CIA. But uh, but at the same time, how can you put your support behind a candidate who will not do that? I mean, certainly if there was someone out there who was saying, let's abolish the CIA and the Pentagon, I, I would be more in support of that than I would in support of this. But again, it's all a moot point and it gets us into a false dialectic because I don't support politicians in general. I don't support the idea that we should hand off part of our, our own capacity to make decisions about our lives and the way that we run our society to these people who live in some other, you know, distant place uh, so that we just write something on a piece of paper every four years. And that's the extent of our political um, ability to to run our own our own communities, our own society. It's it's silly at its base. So so ultimately, you're not going to get any arguments from me about anything that would devolve into a, a status status quo type argument. Well, and, and not just the, um, that, that that's the only extent of our involvement. It's, it's that also when we see more than that, when we see people wanting to do more than just, like you say, put a tick in a box, put a tick on a piece of paper, um, so much of it is, oh, well, raise funds so that this other guy can run on, I mean, what's basically, I think this of all politicians, doesn't matter who they are, it's basically a bit of an ego trip. I want you to vote for me. I want you to see me as an authority. I want you to see me as the solution to the problem. And they're kind of forced into that by the very nature of electoral politics. Um, it might not even be that these people are kind of egotists to begin with. But I think if they once they kind of go down the route of wanting to become elected, I think it's just kind of forced on them. They don't have much choice. They have to kind of, to some extent, become egotistical about it because they have to believe that they are worthy of this supposedly great big powerful office that they're, that they're trying to get elected to and so i see all this energy and all of this money and all of this everything else sort of going into oh we've got to you know we've got to get obama in there or we've got to get ron paul in there or we've got to get someone else in there or you know imagine what we could have accomplished if all of that time and energy and money had gone into something like oh i don't know <clears throat> communities taking over a dilapidated school that the the local authority has you know managed to let it run into the ground and they've closed it down and shunted all those students off into some other school on the other side of town so they have much bigger classrooms and get a w even worse education than they were getting to begin with you know if, if all of those people 
instead of sort of spending spending their money on trying to get someone elected, spent some of that money on you know fix up the dilapidated school and put on some classes that actually teach some kids some useful skills in life. Imagine how much of a difference that could make, even on just a sort of small village or, or town or community scale, rather than on, you know, we've got to herald this political icon and we've got to throw all our weight and identity behind him. I mean, that that's just kind of one off-the-top-of-my-head sort of example. Um, there's, a, there's a million different things that people ca- can and do do that's positive. But again, returning to my sort of reservations about where the alternative media has has so often, not exclusively, but has so often gone with this, um, it's like they sort of give far more coverage to, and it, you know, we finally got a guy that we think represents our platform who might stand a chance of getting the Republican nomination. So we've got to spend hours and hours and hours covering all of that. No, spend all those hours covering small community projects whereby people have just said, stuff the authorities. And, and we're not going to sit around and wait for the free market or some capitalist or some entrepreneur to come along and try and figure out a way of solving this that makes him some money. We're just going to solve the problem. We're just going to take it over ourselves and take on that responsibility ourselves. And that's happening in a million different ways all over the world. And I just don't think, I don't think that gets enough coverage compared to sort of the coverage of, of mainstream politics. And, and that's true even in the alternative media a lot of the time. Uh, well, I think now we might be hitting on the area of differences because I, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And I think it resonates quite well with the message that I had in my podcast, uh, or, sorry, in my radio uh, show that was a response to the Rand Paul endorsement of Mitt Romney, where uh, I basically said, isn't it time for us to grow up and, and start to understand that it the political real political power rests in individuals acting in the world, not not voting for someone and not putting your energy and time into that. So I agree completely with that message. But I find it striking that you would posit that, that people acting together locally at the community level is necessarily in some way opposed to or, or, or should be put other fr- uh, apart from the idea of capitalists working for money. Because I, I don't see those as mutually exclusive. I, I certainly see how people working for their own for for monetary interest can still affect good through community projects and things like that i i I don't exactly see where the delineation is in that argument okay fair enough um i don't think they're mutually exclusive per se it's more just that it kind of breaks down that it's it's in um there's no profit to be made from solving poverty so capitalism's never going to do it (laughs) Um, there isn't well that's 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 a remarkable statement to me. Um, well, I, I don't think that there is. I think that, I mean, one of the main problems people have with a socialized or socialist welfare state, well, there are several sort of key problems that the criticisms tend to center around. The first is that the money is extorted from people essentially by force. It's, you know, the state as a protection racket. Um, I'm not arguing with that at all. That's perfectly true. That's exactly what they do. Um, to use that as a basis for so-called social good often leads people down the route of the collectivist philosophy of, you know, you've all got to do this because it's all for your own good. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm with people on that criticism as well. I completely understand that. And, And the third major criticism that I think people tend to make is that it's woefully inefficient, that if you have a massive centralized administration and bureaucracy, you spend a huge amount of those resources on the administration and bureaucracy rather than the actual services services that you're supposed to be providing. Um, 
and and I agree with all of those criticisms. What I don't agree with is the conclusion a lot of people draw from that, which is that a free market is somehow the thing that will answer these these problems and answer these criticisms. Because, okay, people, you could say people in a open market or free market system give their money voluntarily. They certainly give it more voluntarily than they do give it to the tax man. So, okay, fair enough. I accept that point. The question of collectivism versus individualism, well, that's one that I have, uh, again, it bothers me quite a bit because collectivism per se isn't a bad thing. Collectivism, when it's used as an excuse by a dictatorial state saying we're doing this to you and you must accept it because it's for your own good, of course that's a bad thing. But don't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. After all, you know, a football team couldn't function without a degree of collectivism. Uh, any institution, in fact, that requires more than one person or involves more than one person can't really operate without a degree of collective acceptance of mutual aims. The key is, you know, it has to be entered into voluntarily. And you've made a big point of this. You've very much kind of promoted this idea of voluntarism. And, you know, great, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Um, I just think we need to understand that as something that is not mutually exclusive to entrepreneurs making money. I haven't got a problem with people making money. In fact, I have all the respect in the world for you doing something you love and, and managing to turn it into something you've made a living out of. You know, great. Seriously, man, great. <laughs> um, I, I, I've, I've loads of respect for people who do that kind of thing. And you are ultimately providing a public service. You are providing a, whatever, a distribution of, of useful and important information that will hopefully encourage people to do more positive things with their lives and give them some of the tools that they need to do those things. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sort of in any way trying to oppose capitalism as... Well, no, I am actually opposed to capitalism. I'm not sort of opposed to open markets and competitive markets and entrepreneurialism. Um, and then what was the, the, the third case? The third one was about efficiency. This is part of my problem with capitalism is that if your aim is to make a profit from something, the only way to do that is to charge someone more for a service than that service costs you to provide. Well, with some things, I have no issue with that. But why should, for example, taking care of the elderly be a profitable enterprise? Why should you charge those people or charge someone more for that service than, than you're providing to them? Why shouldn't it be a more non-profit charitable enterprise where you're still charging for the service, but the aim is never to make money on top of that. The aim is simply to provide the best service you can for the lowest price that you can. Um, that's, yeah, that's probably where we might, we might find some, some differences. And, and well, was that a rhetorical question or can I provide an answer? No, go on, go on. I, I would say that there is no should. I think absolutely people can provide that as a as, as a charitable enterprise, perhaps recouping their expenses and no more, or or however they want to do it, or perhaps providing it all completely for free. That's obviously up to the individual, and and that's why I think the capitalist framework for that would be positive because it is inherently a, well, <laughs> the theor the theoretical side of it is inherently voluntaristic. So if people want to go out and provide that service, they are absolutely and totally able to. Okay, sure. So we don't really disagree on that. No, that I don't. I don't think it. that everyone has to make a profit at all times on everything they do. It's completely up to them. I think. 
Well, and so therefore, I suppose my um, my other reservations about this tendency towards, like I say, I have no problem with people being opposed to the state. You know, <laughs> um, I just think that there is a tendency that we're seeing. You know, in mainstream politics, it's towards what you might call right-wing nationalism. In fringe politics, it's towards anarcho-capitalism. Um, and my my problem with this kind of it revolves an awful lot around the words. And of course, this is political philosophy, so it would revolve around the definitions of the words. Um, the notion of a free market, to me, either something's free or it isn't. You don't, you know, when you see. Uh, something in, in the shop and it says 33% extra free, it isn't free. You know, they're, they're still going to make that money back from you when they put the price of that thing up when it's not on offer anymore and that kind of thing. You know, then they're, they're not, that's not a, a beneficial thing that the capitalists are doing for you there. Um, but yet that is kind of how people see the free market. There is a certain degree of uh, utopianism, I feel, towards free market capitalism that somehow the self-interest, the rationally self-interested entrepreneurs are going to solve all these problems because it will be in their interest to do so because they can make a load of money out of it. Um, I don't... I suppose I just don't really have that, that much faith in that. I think entrepreneurs can solve a lot of problems. Again, I'm not opposed to entrepreneurialism at all. Um, I just don't think we should be limited to the idea that anarcho-capitalism is the only kind of option here if we're going to get rid of the state. Um, so, yeah, returning to that, to me, either a free market, you know, either something's free or it isn't. So a free market would actually mean completely unrestricted. And that, in effect, means that anything that someone wants to do in order to make money is okay and no one can stop them from doing it. And that's a very, very dangerous position to put ourselves in, I feel, um, from a moral point of view. The notion that, you know, that's what capitalism sort of fundamentally means. Think of the word capitalism, rule by capital, rule of money. Uh, that, that the only value in things is its ability be, to be traded for a profit. I think there's lots of, lots of other things that are valuable that capitalism not only overlooks but often ends up commodifying and just turning into another product, um, that they lose their value because of that. Um, and, and that there is a, a real danger in advocating a free market above all other things because it would have to be um, in order to be a free market. So perhaps, again, this is about definitions of words because... I know what people are saying, I feel, or at least I feel I do, and what I'm hearing from them is that they don't actually believe in a free market in the sense that they don't believe that there should be a complete unfettered, unrestricted market where anyone's allowed to do anything in order to try and make money. Even Stefan Molyneux doesn't believe that. He says he would like a sort of essentially free market, but one that's tempered by things like the non-aggression principle and the principle of private property. So those are, to some extent, fetters and restrictions on the free market. So I would argue, and obviously this is a conversation I should really be having with Stefan Molyneux, um, that even he doesn't believe in an absolute free market. I mean, I mean, what do, you, what do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. And I've heard him make that point, and I, I agree with it completely. We don't believe in freedom to go out and kill people. Uh, th and anyone who argues that, I think, is, is really outside the bounds of 
well, humanity, basic humanity, I would say. So, so certainly, uh, freedom does not mean the freedom to do anything that you want in the realm of, of the possible. It means the freedom to act within an ethical system that com conforms to the natural law, broadly speaking. And I know there's a lot of, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of debate to be had within that, but I, I would... I would subscribe completely to the, the basic underlying ethical principles of non-aggression and and uh, private property. And, and from that, I think that's, I mean, fundamentally, the way I look at this is not as a, uh, a it's not in terms of an economic system. It's not in terms of, of how to facilitate exchange in the market or, or that type of thing. I, fundamentally, I look at the, look at this as an ethical debate. And to me, it, it, it seems that the only possible system that we can build on a, on those two ethical principles, assuming that we take those axioms as ethical principles, uh, non-aggression and private property, the only one that makes sense is, is voluntarist society, which does not preclude any type of collective action. It does not preclude any type of collectivism or, or people going off and starting their resource-based economies and living in their gleaming plastic cities or whatever they want to try to do. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%, I completely and totally, if people think that'll help, awesome, go out and do it. All I'm saying is that I think that uh, that ultimately there should be no outside restriction on on that on, on the person's ability to act within those within that ethical framework. I guess. Well, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm certainly with you about the whole kind of zeitgeist technocracy. I, I I always sort of as soon as I saw that, I thought this is just a bunch of computer animations. This is kind of this is a bit of a fantasy, and it's not even that nicer looking fantasy since it seems to just treat people as cogs in a giant machine god it would be a nightmare for me but uh, <laughs> if people <laughs> if people want to live in those types of cities yeah go on go for it well sure sure and it's um and with them it, as you say if people want to go off and, and you know get a patch of land and try and build a city or a small town like that starting with a small town like that well okay go and try it um like you i have a lot of reservations about whether it would work but if they were you know it's a, it's a great experiment, politics, so by all means go out and play. But, I mean, what do you feel about this, this notion that if we raise capitalism and, and the market to a point where, um, as it sometimes is rhetorically, if not ideologically and philosophically, it is sometimes rhetorically placed sort of at, at the top of the tree so that, you know, everything has to be part of the market and everything simply becomes a commodity that is, is then exchanged and traded. And that, I mean, do you share my reservations and concerns about some of the dangers of, of that kind of political philosophy? Well, I, I uh, again, assuming that I understand the, the type of political philosophy that you're talking about, certainly I don't subscribe to the idea that everything can be commodified or everything can be assigned a, a dollar value. Um, obviously, when we're talking about exchanging things between people, we are talking about the problem of assigning value to an object. And that problem, uh, I don't know of any other way to solve that problem other than the, the market system. The market will decide the value of something in that system. But that doesn't mean that to me, this particular, whatever, someone painted me a painting a few years ago and, and gave it to me as a present, that has immense value to me that it would not have in the marketplace. And that value is no less of a real thing than the value that the marketplace would assign to that. But to me, that's not a, a question of how we live in society. That's the question of, you know, each person has their own individual values, and that's fine. But it's to me, it's the question of what do we do? How do we come up with a rate of exchange when we're taking something into the marketplace and want to exchange with another human being. And that's, that's I think, where we have to understand that this, this 
question is really happening. I mean, uh, I'm not here to glorify the market. And I don't think, I mean, as someone who has constantly railed against utopian type thinking in, in every way that I see it, I, I don't want to put the market up on a pedestal and say that it will solve everything problem known to man. I'm, I'm sure it, I'm sure it won't. But, uh, but having said that, I, I don't, I don't think I place the market in that that way. I think that there will be uh, lots of ways that people who are working within that framework will be able to solve problems in ways that a, a state wouldn't be able to because they wouldn't be able to think outside of that box. But there are all sorts of things that would not be solvable from uh, from a capitalist perspective or whatever within the system of voluntarism. But that doesn't mean. I mean, to me, it's not a it's not an argument from effect. It's not an argument about what type of system is going to create the best world from some sort of objective viewpoint that it's actually a, a question of what actions can we can we personally do on an everyday basis to each other that are ethical and i i can't think of a system that would answer to that that does not abide by the non-aggression principle and the, the right to private property so so once that that's established assuming those axioms are established i think everyone is free to act in whatever way they want within that system. So, so to me, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the world is even going to get any better. I, I certainly believe it would be demonstrably better from what we have. It, it, to, to me, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm just saying that we have to act from an ethical place and trust that whatever comes out from that is something that we as human beings want because we want to act in an ethical and virtuous manner. Okay, I mean, I'm... I'm with you in, in, the, in the broad position that this isn't even really about necessarily politics and economics. It's more about, you know, what values and do we want to see in the world? What, you know, what, what is, is so important to us that we want to, to sort of found our behavior and our interactions um, on? Uh, I do have, I, I mean, again, I have some reservations about the, the notion of private property. Not that, you know... Um, I mean, to me, it, it's it's not even that I don't think people should have private property, um, or 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 something like that. It's more that um, what's the right way to put this? That ultimately everything comes from well, not everything comes from the Earth because we're bombarded with radiation and solar waves and all the rest of it. Um, but you know, we're on an Earth, and none of us own the Earth per se. Um, we occupy parts of it at different times. That's more how I see it. So if someone lives in a house and they've built that house and you know they, they bring up their family in that house, I've got no problem with that house being theirs to the exclusion of other people, private property in that sense. I have no objection to. But I think there is a, a potential danger in the, <clears throat> in if you like, establishing private property as a kind of fundamental principle because I think it is open to abuse. Uh, I think it can be used to do things like uh, it could justify, oh, I don't know, it could justify Goldman Sachs refusing to pay any taxes while everyone else has to because they're saying, no, sod off, it's our private property. You have no right to touch it. And ultimately, no, the state doesn't have any right to touch it except that they, in the case of Goldman Sachs, certainly helped them acquire that property in the first place. So you could... It sort of it can it can somewhat dis dissolve in circumstances like that, but again, that's arguing within a statist model. And so, okay, forget the statist model for the, for a moment. Um, <clears throat> a different abuse would be, for example, 
Uh, do you know of the Enclosures Act in, in British history? We vaguely learnt about it back in uh, high school, but uh, you'll have to refresh my memory. Well, basically, in the 1700s or so, there was what was called an agricultural revolution in Britain. Not just in Britain, but I'm, you know, I know more about Britain. Um, and you went from an essentially subsistence farming, where people largely just produced as much as they needed to kind of feed themselves and maybe trade a bit with the other people around them, uh, into a much more kind of much more efficient method of food production which meant you had massive agricultural surpluses and this of course then fed into the ability to move large sections of the population into the cities and they could be fed because there was an agricultural surplus and and that's what brought about if you like the industrial revolution um but this posed an, a massive problem for the british authorities because now it was possible scientifically possible uh, technologically possible for all of these farmers to actually have a huge excess capacity from their production and that's the last thing they wanted because then those people might you know gain some power and gain some freedom and be able to make some choices outside of the the control system and so one of the things they introduced was the enclosures act which basically turned the entirety of agricultural britain into private property and it meant that all these landowners who had titles and deeds and little bits of paper that were legally accepted uh, could go and claim that all of this property was theirs. And all of these people who, whose property it really was, who'd you know, been living on it sometimes for their families have been living on it for decades, if not centuries, and growing food there, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's essentially theirs in as much as they're occupying it and using it and doing something worthwhile in it with it. I don't think it's sort of theirs in an absolute sense. Um, if you see my the, the distinction I'm making there. So that's one way in which private property can be used actually as an assault on otherwise beneficial uh, movements right, and but, developments. But to my mind, that's the exact opposite of, of an adherence to private property rights. Because I, I, I believe that private property comes from ultimately ownership of our own bodies, which I, I assume we would agree with, about. And then mm, from mm. that point, we would have the homesteading principle so that anything that's created from our work at, or when we mix our labor with, with an area. So, for example, if we're, we are homesteading on a property, that would be the, the ownership of that property, the private property. So in that case, that would be some sort of arbitrary outside force using force to try to implement a system to, to basically parcel up the land and you know give it to people. But that, that to me would be a violation of private property, not an upholding of it. Yeah, I mean, in reality... Uh, it is, but what what I'm saying is that again, it's one of these things that can be used uh, right. it can and be, have the yeah. the appearance. So the of, idea can be used to basically as a type of weapon against other people. Well, I, I understand that, but I think that doesn't go against the underlying philosophical point. No, no. I mean, my reservation about the underlying philosophical point is when it um, is kind of when it becomes an absolutism rather than a kind of contingent thing. I mean, like you say, if we agree that we own our own bodies then, you know, we only own our own bodies and, until we die. Um, we're only here sort of contingently and temporarily. So I don't have any problem with it kind of within those limitations. So I'm not, uh, I'm not I don't think I'm fundamentally at odds with, um, with it as a practical thing. I suppose my, my only reservations are that if you kind of say this is my property as a matter of principle, um, 
I just don't, I kind of just don't really believe that because ultimately it's a patch of earth. It's just part of the earth. Um, and when you die, you'll be gone and it won't be yours anymore. Um, so I don't really accept necessarily the principle extends beyond the contingent realm. Um, Agreed. I, I, but you, I, but you I don't might think, say that doesn't even matter. Well, yeah, I, I don't. I, I would hope that people who are uh, arguing for that principle wouldn't say that that's that becomes an inherent part of the object itself. That it is something that is you know owned in that sense. I don't think it's anything metaphysical or anything. I think it is necessarily contingent and just um, obviously depends on on the circumstances it you know that surrounds it. And and I I think you're right. I mean there can be huge problems in attempting to define, for example, the homesteading principle so that one person can't just, you know, put stakes around a uh, 300,000 square kilometer area and say, yep, that's that's mine. I mean, obviously that we have to understand what that principle means and, and what constitutes, you know, actually being, you know, using an area, using a property, use, mixing something, your labor with something in a, in a way that actually makes it yours. I think there's obviously a lot that would have to be hammered out there, but I think the underlying principle is just that uh, that whatever whatever we can ultimately decide is is our property in whatever contingent sense we want to decide on that cannot be aggressed upon by someone else. Yeah, and and as a defense against that aggression if you're using it in, in that sense, I, I don't really have any objections to it because, like I say, I don't think that someone who's, who's, you know, lived in a house for however many decades and raised their family there should have to put up with someone turning up and saying, this is my house. You know, no, it isn't. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. The other thing about the Enclosures Act, which is the sort of, um, the bit that, if you like, bothers me the most, is that what was lost was uh, all the common land, or pretty much all of the common land. And this is what you might call um, the the socialism of the day, socialism before the word socialism even existed, um, because it was collectively owned. It wasn't specifically owned by any individual to the exclusion of others, or any group to the exclusion of others. Uh, anyone could go and sort of graze their their animals there or they could forage for food there or if, if they were homeless because they'd been turfed out because they'd for whatever reason but you know if they were a drunk and they'd completely mismanaged their farm and therefore been turfed out of this farm that they were renting off a landowner or whatever they could go and build a, a sort of shack there and go and live there and this was um i actually think all of you know all of that is actually very beneficial and there is a danger in this in in a, in a move towards anarcho-capitalism and and in a idealization of the free market that all of those such things will actually be treated with great suspicion and hostility when in fact i think i think they're actually really good things um and and it was a real blow to this country and in some ways why we then ended up with the rise of the welfare state in the 19th century um is because those things were destroyed and so well uh, i'm not a socialist in a, certainly not in the sense of a sense of a state socialist but i do think there is a certain philosophy of what i would call anarcho socialism which is sort of along those lines that um that i would advocate again i don't want to keep harping on the same point but i don't think we're ultimately at disagreement there because again i think if if there is a group of people living in an area who decide it's in their best interest to use certain let's let's take this land and make it common land and we'll all farm from it Again, there's nothing stopping them from doing that. And I mean, to me, it's not anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-socialist or anarcho-whatever. It's anarcho. The people can do whatever they want within that system as long as they're not aggressing on other people. So as long as it's voluntary, again, I don't see any problem with that. 
Right. So, I mean, we, I don't think we, we fundamentally disagree about an awful lot here, but... Um, well, this is turning all, into the fireworks uh, festival that I was expecting it to be. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, we need more action, thing, more drama, more conflict. Come on. <laughs> but, um, okay, okay. But, I mean, when you, when you asked me to explain what I meant by anarcho-socialism, it would be something like that. And that's slightly, I mean, if you, if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of this, there are, I mean, when, when anarchism rose as a political philosophy in the kind of second half of the 19th century in a big way, um, you did have quite a dispute between the likes of the anarcho-socialists like Bakunin and the, the anarcho-communists like Kropotkin, who, again, they're not talking about imposition of systems, even though they've got the words socialism and communism in their philosophies. They're not talking about imposing this on, on people. If you like, they're talking about this as an idealized example that they hoped people would adopt. And so you could have a collectively owned farm. You know, no one actually owns the land. Uh, the, the sort of fundamental means of production, the land itself, it is sort of just held in occupation by the people who are all working on it. An anarcho-communist would argue the communist principle that the production from that land should be divvied up according to need, in effect, you know, the from each according to their ability to each according to their need of Marxism. Uh, but an anarcho-socialist like Bakunin would say, no, 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 you can't divide it up like that. You have to still maintain that those who work harder and produce more get more out of it. You have to still maintain that certain degree of uh, self-interested production of entrepreneurialism within an agricultural setting here. But still, uh, you just you have to maintain that because otherwise your farm will ultimately end up in ruin because those who are capable of more and are capable of working harder and producing more will sort of have no motive to do so and will probably end up resenting the other people and the whole collective voluntary right, project is going to end up falling apart. Right. Well, then let me put the anarcho-capitalist position into that then because I think the obvious answer would be, well, obviously it would go back to the, the establishment of the, the commons, the common land or whatever was being questioned in this case there would be a, a contract that people would voluntarily enter into at the establishment of it but by which all parties would agree to abide and if they did not obviously there would be certain whatever we can imagine what type of insurance system or re resolution system the third party arbitration whatever would also be set out in terms of the contract that was entered into originally so i think people would be able to, to still solve those types of problems because they would be they would be entered into willingly at the at the outset of the enterprise yeah I, i'm not i'm not saying people wouldn't be able to solve them by any means uh, i think you're dead right i think you know as long as people sort of intelligently outline their their principles and and, and their limitations and all the rest of it at the beginning then hopefully most of these <clears throat> most of these problems would be avoided um i suppose what i'm ultimately the point i'm making with that little bit is that just because these things have got the words socialism and communism in them doesn't mean that they're some kind of collectivist conspiracy being imposed by the state from above and so therefore the if you like the the extreme skepticism and suspicion that i see towards the words socialism and communism i understand where that comes from and again i largely agree with it if not entirely agree with it but i do think within a stateless system there are some very, very positive ideas there. And so um, I suppose all I'm really saying is, you know, look up people like Kropotkin and Bakunin because they they'd had some models for this that maybe aren't 
entirely applicable today because they were writing 120, 150 years ago, whatever. Um, but go and have a look at this stuff and just see if it inspires you towards something that if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're not the sort of person who wants to invent something and make money out of it, but you do want to be more politically active and, and kind of try and help this movement to bypass the state and to ultimately abolish the state, um, then have a look at some of these ideas and see how can you can adapt them and how they might be applicable to community projects or, or other voluntarist, voluntarist projects in this day and age. Um, and don't be put off by the kind of brush tag line of anarcho-socialism or something just as I'm not put off by anarcho-capitalism just because I have a lot of reservations about capitalism um, and hopefully then we can have a much more mature debate about this where we can at least agree on some terms to begin with and then say right how do we move forward from here I'm still not convinced that we're ultimately that there is ultimately a, a disagreement between any of the sides of that proposed debate, because ultimately in a voluntarist society, I think all you're doing is choosing what strategy you want to abide by or what, what you personally want to follow within that. So if we're talking about what would we do in the stateless society, how would, how would we want to organize ourselves, then I suppose that's one thing. Uh, personally, it's, it's very difficult for me to get past the getting rid of the state part, which I think is, is pretty much the major concern we have at this particular moment. Yeah, sure, sure it is. Although I will say um, one final thing, uh, because we've, we've been going at this for a while now um, on, that, on that front, is that I also see the danger that in, the, in abolishing the state whether or not we leave ourselves open to something even worse because given that all of these great big kind of if not monopolies cartels certainly cartels have are already in existence uh if we then go and enter into a free market and try and compete with them they'll probably blow us out of the water because they've already got all the money and the resources and the control that they need even if we take the state out of the equation and somehow manage to you know get rid of that as one of their means of protection. Uh, I still think they've got plenty of other means of protection left. So while I'm all in favor of abolition of the state, I don't think, um, I don't think that would be the end of the battle by any means. And I'm not convinced that a free market or quasi free market, an open market, um, would necessarily be a, a means to actually usurping the, the Goldman Sachs and the ExxonMobil and, and all the rest of it. Oh, 100% agreed. And I think people who listened to my first uh, conversation with Stefan Molyneux will see that was the, the basis of, of my, ultimately our disagreement, I think, was, was my concerns about the transition to a, a stateless society, given the fact that we have had such a, a hopelessly, unbelievably tilted system for so long. I can't imagine any way of abolishing the state at this moment that won't still leave the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and Warburgs and whoever else you want to throw on that list in some inordinate advantage over the rest of us. So obviously, I think the question of transition is absolutely the most crucial, which is why I think it's probably more important for us to be spending our time on that type of issue than, than thinking about what we would do when we eventually have the stateless society. I mean, I think there's there's the question of how we get there that's uh, that's extremely important and perhaps a conversation for another day because as you say we have been at this for an awfully long time so <laughs> perhaps we shall agree to leave it there yeah and hopefully next time we'll we'll disagree about some more <laughs>
Coolio. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> <Coolio>. <laughs> okay. Well, Tom Secker, always, always an interesting conversation. And you, uh, you never let me down on that front. So uh, once again, thank you so much for that. And let's direct people to your website one more time. Yeah, I mean, uh, there isn't much political philosophy on there yet, but hopefully there will be more soon. Uh, you can find all of my films and previous conversations and articles and all the rest of it at investigatingtheterror.com investigatingtheterror.com well we will uh, certainly pick up this conversation at a later date so until then Tom Secker thank you for your time thank you James